what what was the name of that of that journal again? Uh, Eastern Yugoslavian Journal of Applied Basket Weaving and okay. Performer Neuropathy. Eastern so. Yugoslavian Journal of Applied Basket Weaving. <laughs> Are we going back to the loud typing bit, Stuart? I like it. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> it's a classic. <laughs> Oh, okay. Little curbsider street for the old. <laughs> Welcome back to the curbsiders. Well, hello, Matt. Hello, Stuart. Hello. And Paul. And Paul. Paul, I'm not forgetting about you. Hello, Paul. This is the Internal Medicine Podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-host, Dr. Stuart Brigham. Hello, Dr. Watto. <laughs> and Dr. Paul Williams. I'm betting if we tallied up the number of times we say hello in an episode, it has to be double digits. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. Paul, we should do that. Paul has low blood sugar. We better burn through this one, Stuart. <laughs> okay. I'd like to start off by reading a comment made by a listener on the website. And uh, I apologize to the listener. I don't have your – it was a, a farm D, but I do not have his, uh, his or her name in front of me. But they brought up a great point. So recently we spoke with Dr. Eric Adler from University of California, San Diego, about heart failure. And we were speaking about the, the newer drug – and Tresto, which is Valsartan Secubitril, which I probably mispronounced. And this person brought up the fact that on Entresto, there's a 24 to 36-hour waiting period because uh, you need to let the, an ACE inhibitor, if they were on an ACE inhibitor, you need to wait 24 to 36 hours and let it wash out before you start Entresto. And the reason is because in the studies between Secubitril and ACE inhibitors, there was an increased incidence of angioedema. And this this person was recommending uh, as a pharmacist that we wait 36 hours minimum before starting in Tresto after someone's been on an ACE. And that's because of this side effect of angioedema. And that is uh, mentioned in the, the heart failure guidelines. And if you read any of the package inserts about Entresto. So that was a great point. And uh, thank you for bringing that up. And, and thank you for listening and taking the time to make a comment. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Stuart at at this and hello <laughs> and hello and hello it's number seven I think what's number seven I'm missing the hellos <laughs> oh okay you're we're, we're counting hellos <laughs> yeah at this point I think it's time for picks of the week <laughs> okay wonderful I love the music I am as always Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, or Williams, as we've shortened <laughs> to. <laughs> Paul, could you please give us your pick of the week? Sure. Yeah, no, I hope the Williams thing catches fire. I'm, <laughs> I'm loving it. Um, so, it, so we actually, as you'll hear a little bit later, had a little bit of a Philadelphia-centric episode. So I'm in keeping with that, I'm actually going to recommend um, a movie I saw over the past week. Uh, so, it's and again, not breaking any barriers here, but if you haven't seen Creed, the 2015's, you know, follow-up to all the whole Rocky franchise directed by Ryan Coogler. Um, you should absolutely search it out. As someone who actually lives in Philadelphia, it's just, you, you don't want to say anything hokey like the city plays a character, but it's its very clearly Philadelphia-based, which is sort of a joy to watch. But in and of itself, the performances are great. Even Sylvester Stallone's fantastic, and its it hits all the beats you would want in a sports movie. So if you haven't seen Creed yet, go out and watch it. I have not seen it, Paul, and it, it is on my to-do list uh, now that now that you're giving it 
the Paul Williams stamp of approval, which is one of the highest stamps of approval. Paul, will this episode make me cry? Or will this uh, episode, will this movie it's make me movie. cry? Yeah. <laughs> so possibly yes to both. It depends, <laughs> like you said, how you do with the with sports movies. So okay, if you typically cry at the end of them, then yes. <laughs> Stuart, what's your pick of the week? So my pick of the week is directly applicable to what we're talking about today. So one of the old dogmas is that those who learn, learn by doing. One of the things that I've been doing over the past couple of months is to uh, be more involved with clinical research, also with the writing of IRB proposals, submitting them. And so the book that I recommend is called Designing Clinical Research. It's currently in the fourth edition that you can get. Fourth edition was published, I believe, in 2013. And it just goes over how to design clinical research from the ground up. And I've learned a lot about how to apply statistical methods to certain design uh, um, uh, study designs in order to get the end result that you're looking for, and also how to avoid some of the, the statistical pitfalls that can trap you into obtaining a, a statistically significant but clinically irrelevant result. And my pick of the week is definitely directly applicable and a little bit related to what you're you're talking about, Stuart. This is a book by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. The Black Swan is a book about how Big, big life-changing events are things that occur outside of the normal distribution. So if, if you think of, of things and everything in the world happens inside a normal distribution, then you are going to be shocked when some, some freak event occurs and changes your life forever. And this guy is a finance guy, and he kind of, I guess, makes his living by, by setting himself up to benefit from these black swan events, these rare events that happen outside of the normal distribution. That most that people, sounds very ominous. Well, I think it's an interest. He has an interesting take on the world. Basically, looking at how like most people are thinking. Okay, if I'm if I'm planning for what's going to happen inside a normal distribution, you know, then I'm going to ignore the five percent at the tails, and that's that can set you up for disaster. So I think they're good books. They're they are cautionary tales, but definitely this guy has a completely different way of looking at the world than most most people do and and i think those books often can can teach you the most and and just keep you thinking outside the box so that's why i really like like his books and that's nasim nicholas taleb and then also just to tack on the the 2010 movie black swan by darren aronofsky also really excellent so watch that too <laughs> and that is thanks for reminding me that has nothing to do with statistics i don't have you seen it you may, you don't know that <laughs> I, I think I have seen it actually, Paul, and I don't I don't remember uh, any Wall Street trading in there or statistical number crunching. Anyway, we're really off topic here. <laughs> On this episode, we thought it would be a good idea to to do something a little bit different than than usual, which is speak with some experts from the Annals of Internal Medicine, Dr. Christine Lane and Dr. Darren Tashman, and they were we wanted them to kind of school us on how we should approach the medical <laughs> literature, and uh, pun intended, School I guess. Indeed, <laughs> I did get mega burned by Dr. Lane several times on the episode, which uh, I'm sure everyone will enjoy. And uh, so, if you're one of those people that is is intimidated by the literature or thinks of yourself as being bad at statistics and that you you can't read the literature because of that, then this is going to be a great episode for you. Our guest, Dr. Christine Lane 
MD, MPH. She's the editor-in-chief of the Annals of Internal Medicine. She's also a senior vice president at the American College of Physicians, and she's a practicing physician in the Philadelphia area. She's board certified in internal medicine and is a clinical associate professor in the Division of Internal Medicine at Jefferson Medical College. She's been working for the Annals since 1995 and became the editor-in-chief, the youngest editor-in-chief in the history of the Annals in July 2009. And she has done a lot of work in medical education, medical publishing, and we were thrilled to have her on the show, kind of giving us her expertise about, about how to approach the literature. Our other guest, Dr. Darren Tashman, is, is the executive deputy editor at the Annals of Internal Medicine and a vice president in the American College of Physicians. Dr. Tashman is a pulmonary critical care trained physician specializing in pulmonary vascular disease, currently working at the University of Pennsylvania, where he is an adjunct associate professor of medicine. He is also an expert on reviewing the medical literature and gave us some great teaching points. I think there's a lot here that you can use for your practice going forward, and I hope you find it as valuable as we did. And don't worry, we don't make any analogies. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, I've been missing those, Stuart. It's, it's been a, a little while since you had a good one. <laughs> <laughs> and remains that way. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to the Curbsiders. This Buenos is your- dias. <laughs> Hello, Stuart. Uh, this is Hi. this is Dr. Matthew Watto here with Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham and Dr. Paul Hello. Nelson Williams. Hi, Matt. How are you? Good. Okay, Paul. <laughs> Stuart, you always seem uh, surprised that Paul is actually on the show, but uh, <laughs> it's as if you That's, haven't uh, been talking to him for 20 minutes already. Anyway, <laughs> so we have with us tonight, and we are thrilled to have with us tonight from the Annals of Internal Medicine and the American College of Physicians, Dr. Christine Lane. Hi, everyone. And Hello. Dr. <laughs> and Dr. Darren Tashman. Hello. The first question that we always like to ask our guests are kind of getting to know you ones. And one of the questions, uh, Dr. Lane, I'll throw this to you first. If you had to describe yourself as a one-liner, the way that you do on rounds in the hospital, what would that description sound like? Okay, I am a fellowship-trained general internist, clinical epidemiologist, medical journalist, uh, wife, mom of two emerging adults, and right now I would rather be downhill skiing than doing this podcast. (laughs) Oh, Matt. (laughs) Burn. Well, let's be honest, you and me both. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Dr. Tashman, how about you? Same question. That's a tough one to follow. I am an internist, pulmonologist, critical care physician, also a medical journal editor, and in his spare time, is mostly enjoys being a dad of three mm. and uh, likes farming. That sounds pretty relaxing, actually. Hey, hey, Matt, can I can I throw a question real quick? Sure. So, uh, Dr. Tashman, did you write the book Pulmonary Vascular Disease? With with Jess Mendel, yes. Okay, okay. And then uh, Dr. Lane, um, I just wanted to ask you as well, when I looked up which books you had written, quite a few pull up. I see on being a doctor three, on being doctor four, at least as editor, 
and of course the in the clinic series one pulls up i'm not sure if you if you wrote this one but i have to ask it it says 2048 a love story did you write that one that was not me okay (laughs) i was kind of hoping it was great question and the other ones i didn't write i edited (laughs) yeah Paul and Stuart, I wanted to give you guys a chance. Any any favorite questions you wanted to ask before we kind of move on to the main main topic? Go ahead, Paul. I'll, I'll give it to Paul. Oh, well, thank you. I, yeah, it's the the one that I am always fascinated by, and I guess we'll start with Dr. Lane first. Is just a book that you feel every physician should read, and it doesn't necessarily have to be medical. So I really don't think there's one book that every physician should read. I think um, life would be really boring if everyone read the same books. So. I'm going to take a pass on that one. Oh, a rare pass. All right. <laughs> Dr. Tashman, same question to you. I just read Wonder by R.J. Palaccio, I think is how her last name is said. And I think that's wonderful. And I think uh, it would be good for any physician to read that. What is that about? So it's a book about a child who has severe, develop, uh, severe congenital abnormalities and thus his face is quite deformed. And he now, having been homeschooled um, until middle school, suddenly has to go out and face, uh, no pun intended, honestly, um, going to school with, with everybody else. And yeah. uh, I, think it, I think it is a wonderful thing to, to try to look at ourselves and what it might be like to be in, in his shoes. Yeah, it was actually required reading for my uh, girls when they were in, in middle school. So I think when they were in sixth mm-hmm. grade, it was re- it was required reading. So it, it, it is yeah. a very good book. I do agree with what you're saying. You're a great dad, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my kids are uh, real good kids, uh, so it's easy. So one of the questions that I wanted to ask, it's the beginning of the academic year. We have brand new interns across the United States. And so one of the issues that I that we deal with on a routine basis is trying to impart advice to be able to navigate the world of medical literature. I, I know this is somewhat encroaching on what Matt wanted to talk about, and I'll start start with you, Dr. Lane. Um, what would you say is the best advice that you could give to these new interns about how best they could navigate the world of medical literature? And then in addition to that, what source, aside from the annals, of course, would you recommend to help these young physicians understand how to critically appraise said literature? That's a tough one. I think the biggest mistake that people make is feeling like they have to read everything and you're not going to be successful that way. You know, there's just too much to read out there to spend any time reading something that really isn't closely aligned with what you. Uh, want and need to know, because the literature is is so vast. I mean, the advice that I got from my department chair when I was finishing residency is he had all the senior residents in a room, and he said a couple of things that, you know, back then I never thought that I would actually end up working for the organization, but he said, join the American College of Physicians, and if you're a subspecialist, join the subspecialty organization read the annals and the, and the top specialty journals in your area, the New England Journal, and then maybe pick another few that you scan regularly. 
and um, sift through the articles from, from those. And that he said that your reading of that sort of core set of stuff will point you to material in other places that maybe you would want to read, um, but that you needed to start with a relatively small set. And I think those were the days before we had digital resources like JournalWise, one that, one that Annals produces, where you could set filters and, and try to get articles on, on particular topics or from particular journals fed to your inbox. So I think it's, it's easier these days if you take the time to get used to some of those tools and get used to scanning those feeds when they come into your phone. Stuart has has artfully moved us into the topic, and some of what we've just been talking about is is actually in there's a there's a large it's a quite large book, but you don't have to read all of it. You can kind of skim certain parts. But the JAMA User's Guide to the Medical Literature it does talk about a lot of these things that we've been discussing here. I I think a, a way to kind of start us off here so. I think it should be reasonable for us to kind of develop some sort of a like three minute approach to an article. And let's, I guess, let's say it's a clinical trial to make it a little bit more simplified as to how we're going to look at it is, or, or Dr. Lane, maybe I can ask you, do you, is it possible to appraise an article in three minutes or, or does, how much time does it take you? And if let's say you're someone that's relatively new to this, how much time do you think it, it could reasonably take a listener? Do you think we can help them shorten the time it takes for appraisal? I think you can shorten it, but you can't do an in-depth appraisal in three minutes. I mean, because three minutes is not long enough to read the detail in the article, and sometimes the devil is in the details. I think three minutes should be ample time to identify the question that a piece of uh, research is trying to answer and decide if it's a question that you care to learn the answer to. And if you do, then it's probably worth a little more than three minutes of investment. So let's say uh, I, I have kind of like a, this is loosely based on a recent randomized trial. And we'll say that this was done at Cashlack Memorial Hospital, which is the the fake hospital where Paul Stewart and I work. And we use this to uh, talk about cases, uh, you know, for HIPAA purposes and also not all of our employers like us to say who they are in the air. So let's say you're you're reading a, a study about a randomized placebo-controlled trial. It's got twenty thousand patients with coronary artery disease, and their 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 LDL is ninety at the start of the study. They're looking at a PCSK nine inhibitor. Patients are going to be on it for two years, and they're looking at this primary composite endpoint, like a lot of the cardiology studies do, and then some secondary endpoints. What is kind of the first thing, what's the first part that our listeners should read? Let's say we're trying to get that first, let's say, three minutes. We just want to know, is this article even worth me kind of taking the time to pick apart more in depth? So where do you start looking? Dr. Tashman, I'll, I'll throw that question to you. Well, I guess, I guess you start by assessing what the question is. So what is the intervention? This is a trial. So are you interested in this, the potential effect of this PCSK9 uh, inhibitor? And then what's the outcome? What, what outcome is being reported? And if the outcome is not something that you think is meaningful to you, either as a researcher or as a clinician taking care of patients, that's, that's, the, first, that's the first step uh, as to how far you're going to dive in. 
Dr. Lane, so Dr. Tashman's mentioning the looking at the outcome that they're looking at. Can you give an example of maybe like a good outcome or a bad outcome that when I say bad outcome, I mean like a, a non-clinically significant outcome that might that sometimes studies point to versus a good outcome? What the appropriate outcome is depends on what you're going to be using the information for. So if you're going to be using the information to make clinical decisions, I think you want outcomes that patients care about. So people may care a little bit if their LDL level goes down, but if it doesn't reduce strokes and myocardial infarction and other cardiovascular events, that's not going to be very meaningful to the patient. So Dr. Tageman, so Dr. Lane somewhat alluded to this. And uh, unfortunately, we, we seem to, ha- to hang our hats on, on statistical significance at times, not clinical significance. What would you say that we could tell our learners to help to convince them that statistical significance does not be- beget clinical significance? Well, if you have for example, a large trial like the one you've just described with 20,000 patients, it might be quite possible to demonstrate that there is a difference in this primary composite endpoint that, that, that you've got for the trial with a p-value that happens to be significant, let's say 0.00005. I mean, it just sounds fantastic. But (laughs) when you look at the actual difference in the Mm -hmm. rate of the primary composite endpoint, um, you might discover that, yes, there was a statistically significant difference, and one group had a 60% event rate primary primary endpoint event rate, and the other group had a 60.1. And that that may not turn out, you know, that, that alone may not be clinically important, that difference, especially when you look at the potential confidence intervals. The mm-hmm. p-value may be, may be significant, but you can't fall into the trap that so many of us do of just looking at the p-value and saying, oh, it's a positive trial. So if you need to look at the confidence intervals, um, because that tells you what the range of possible outco- uh, possible results for this trial could really lie within. Um, and then I, I imagine we're going to get later in this conversation into looking carefully at the actual endpoints, you know, and, and how important they are. Yeah, I, I did want to touch on that because it's something that I, I do have my own biases and one of which is that I, I, I'm a little bit skeptical about composite endpoints, especially when they mm-hmm. seem to lump disparate endpoints together in order to find something mm-hmm. that's statistically significant. What do you personally think about composite endpoints? So so composite endpoints are useful as a trialist because the event rate for any single outcome might not be high enough to allow you to have statistical power to conduct a trial without an enormous sample size. So you put, let's say, cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, non-fatal myocardial infarction, and stroke together, you've got more events. You don't need to do as large of a trial. That can still be important clinically because taking care of patients, your patient's probably don't want to have any of the things that I mentioned. They don't want to die. They don't want to have a non-fatal myocardial infarction. 
and they don't want to have a stroke. So it's still clinically useful. The danger comes in when we fail to look carefully at that com- what makes up the composite and not notice, for example, mm-hmm. let's say the composite has death and um, hospitalization from any cause. Right. Let's just make that up. And it looks like the drug came out reducing that primary endpoint more than the comparator treatment. But if you dive in, it looks like if you fail to look at the details, you might not notice that we're actually more deaths with the drug. But what drove the difference was a lot higher, a much higher rate of hospitalizations in the comparator group. And then you might say, hmm, death is a lot more important to my patients than these hospitalizations. Maybe the conclusion isn't that this drug is really better. Dr. Lane, Dr. Tashman mentioned statistical power, and this is a concept, I think we should go ahead and, and define it and talk about, does, is this always reported in an article? And, and if it's not, is there a way that we can sort of give a rough estimate of power ourselves? Sample size and power are not easy things to assess. They sometimes are not reported in studies, and we often find that when they are reported, they may be um, reported incorrectly. Um, So it's very difficult. And the the things that you have to keep in mind are not only the number of patients that are in the study, but the size of the difference that you want to be able to find and the frequency of the events that you're measuring. So all of those things need to be factored in. And when somebody is designing a trial, they're making guesses about some of these things because if they knew what was really going to happen, they, they wouldn't need to do the trial. So it's, it, it's really um, very difficult to look at a study and, and, um, and calculate what the sample size or the power is. So and, and just because the study is very large doesn't mean it's big enough. And just because it's small doesn't mean it's too small to give you, you know, provide convincing evidence to answer a question. So I think the critical consumer of medical research really needs to look at confidence intervals rather than p-values and judge whether the findings support or can definitely rule out a clinically meaning, um, meaningful differences between the study groups. I mean, I wish that I could say, you know, there was some little formula that you could do and, and decide whether a study was big enough or not, but you really have to look at the confidence intervals and the magnitude, you know, and the, and the lower and the upper bound and decide, you know, first of all, whether they really didn't detect a difference because there's just a lot of overlap. And uh, if the difference that they did, that the results are compatible with are clinically meaningful or not. So I, I think Paul has a question, but I, I do want to just kind of summarize where we're at here. So we're, our, our goal is to quickly look at this, look at the study, try to decide if this article is, is worth reading or not. And we said the first thing we're going to do is look at the question that the, the article is looking to answer. Then we're going to kind of look at the endpoints and, and see, are these endpoints going to be clinically relevant for, for my patient or to answer the question that I'm looking to answer? And most of what we just talked about was kind of how we're how we're looking at the clinical endpoint and how we're deter- how we're interpreting whether or not it was significant. So that's just kind of a summary. 
Matt, I think you left out an important an important step. It's looking at the looking at the interventions that are being compared. Yes. Thank you. Which is really, really important. I'm not I'm not surprised I left something out. That's why that's why we need your help desperately. Okay. I, I would add one quick thing about power in terms of what beginners really need to focus on when they hear about whether a study is adequately powered or very importantly, if they're not being told in a study what power there was. Power is important, particularly in a study that is telling you that we found no difference between something. So for example, there was no difference in these bad events, these bad side effects. Mm -hmm. Power is your ability to say no. So if a study reports to you that there was no difference and they're trying to tell you that that lack of difference is a good thing, they need to tell you how much power they had to detect the difference. That, that's, what, that's really what power is telling you. It's your ability to really conclude there's nothing going on here. Excellent. I did want to actually ask about bias um, as we're sort of being critical of the literature. I feel like one source of bias everyone's kind of has heightened awareness of is industry funding. Uh, and they sort of worry that that may impact how the study was performed. I wonder if you wouldn't mind talking about some of the, the common sources of bias and, and how we can see how they may have potentially impacted the study. Uh, well, you, men you mentioned industry funding and we do, we do focus on that a lot. The bias from industry funding or really other people, we need to remember that we all have biases. So academicians, without any industry funding, have bias because they want a positive trial because it gets published and it helps them get promoted. And everyone brings their own bias into how they design the study and, very importantly, how they write it. So what they tell you and what they choose not to tell you in writing up the, the study. But then there's stuff that, that's involved in the actual design of the study um, that people may do innocently without realizing. There may be problems with how the study ended up blinded blinding. You need to assess, does this make sense? Does it, does it really seem likely to you that the participants in the study and those treating the participants really didn't know what drug or placebo that the individuals were getting? Christine, you wanted to, I think you wanted to jump in as well. No, I think, I mean, sources of bias can be subtle decisions that are made in the study design that will tilt in favor of one outcome outcome or another. They're, they're not always nefarious and intentional. And, um, but usually. <laughs> but, but they, they can be, but, but not, not always. As Darren said, there are, you know, intellectual biases that are, can be more difficult to detect and measure and disclose than um, industry relationships. And that's why, you know, the, the, Industry relationships trouble us the most in material that is commentaries or narrative reviews, material that doesn't, you, you can't really open the box and look into the methods to, to tell whether there have been subtle decisions made in the study design that are tilting one way um, or another. When something is, is purely opinion, it's harder to tell what those biases are. So we at least at Annals, we have stricter rules about who we find acceptable to write those sorts of pieces and, and who we try to avoid. 
So I, I want to go ahead and throw out another question. Uh, I'll, I'll direct this to talk to Dr. Tejman. Um, in our critical appraisal class, we focus a lot on the differences between intention to treat versus a per protocol analysis in order to obtain statistically significant results, especially if there's a lot of dropout in a specific study. What What is your your approach to intention to treat analysis versus a per protocol? And we should probably define those terms for the audience. Sure. So intention to treat can be defined differently by different authors and investigators. So it's important to dive into the details and go beyond the words and get to what really matters, which is who entered the study and who's being analyzed. And the ideal is that you're looking at an analysis that includes everybody who started the trial. A per-protocol study, per-protocol analysis can also vary in how it's defined, but simplistically means how many people stuck with exactly what we wanted them to do throughout the duration of the study. And if you think about some of the reasons that people might not follow what you wanted in your protocol, such that they're no longer they, they're no longer in the analysis, those reasons for leaving the study and not being in the analysis might be really important. Did a bunch of people on the investigational agent drop out in the early phase of the study after taking a single dose, let's say, of the drug because the drug caused them horrible nausea and they no longer they no longer wanted to participate in the study. Now you've got later on, weeks and weeks later, you've got a study that only included the people who didn't have that terrible side effect. That's not telling you everything you'd like to know. In fact, in the, in extreme examples, you might even view a per-protocol study as almost an observational study. You're no longer seeing the full benefit of the randomization. Remember, you're, you're doing a randomized trial because you want that randomization to sort of ideally even out all of the variables that might affect how well somebody does, except for the one intervention that you're changing between the two groups. If you don't report everybody who went into the trial in your analysis, by the end, if there have been enough dropouts and reasons for not including in the analysis, you may no longer have that benefit of randomization. You might actually be essentially reporting an observational study. That's, that's well said. And I think I just want to try and recap a little bit here before we maybe start, talk about some of the other types. Okay. Dr. Lane, please point out any mistakes I make. I'm sure there might be some. Okay. So what, enthusiastically. <laughs> so, uh, so the question, uh, so the first thing we look at when we're, we're, so we're trying to do this in three minutes, just look at the study. Is this worth reading? Is this worth me going in depth? So first we look at the question that's being asked. Then we look at what invention, interventions are they comparing? Then we're going to kind of evaluate, okay, what endpoints are they looking at? Are these clinically significant to my patient? And then we're going to kind of be looking for biases and some of the things we talked about with the biases would be, is this industry funded? Was the blinding done correctly? Is this intention to treat or per protocol? 
anything big I'm missing that, that, that you look at Dr. Lane when you're quickly kind of just giving a study a once over? I mean, the, the, the thing that we haven't um, mentioned yet is the, who was in the study. So if you practice in Philadelphia, like I do, in a very, you know, ethically diverse, relatively disadvantaged population, but the trial included all well-educated white women from Scandinavia who had great um, health benefits. You know, I shouldn't be surprised if, if I use that intervention in my own patients, I might not get the same result. So I think the other thing is to look at the population and make a judgment about how well does it, it, you know, is it likely to be generalizable to the types of patients that, that you care for in your own practice? And I had a question in, in our, in our residency curriculum and in many medical schools, they, they use this PICO format, which is kind of a way for, for teaching critical appraisal and, and for kind of looking, developing, a, formulating a, a clinical question. Is this something you think is, is useful that people should be carrying on into their, their actual practice? Or is this something that is, is like over an oversimplification? I, you know, I think that it's useful. I don't personally, I didn't learn that in my training. I've certainly learned about it since then. So it's not, um, it, I don't particularly use that acronym or think PICOS when I'm looking at a particular piece of um, of medical evidence, but I think it's just a, a way of remembering all the things that you just you just listed. Right. So for for the audience, if you if you haven't heard of PICO, it's it's basically patient. So the that would kind of go in with like who who are you looking at for this intervention? What are the inclusion exclusion criteria? The, the intervention is the I, the C is the comparison. So what, what interventions are you comparing? And the O is the outcome. So kind of the endpoints, are they clinically significant? And the whole thing you use to develop your, your question. So you kind of plug in a specific patient and demographic. And it, it is kind of kind of what we've been talking about here. So that is, is maybe a way, it kind of roughly approximates to what we've, what we've talked about so far. Stuart and Paul, I wanted to see, uh, Stuart, do you, do you have a follow-up question to, to anything we've said here so far? No, no, not, not yet. Not yet. Paul, any, anything else that you wanted to ask here before we, we move on? No, I don't think it's, it's a problem when our guests are almost too thorough. So yeah, no, I've not generated any follow-up <laughs> questions. You guys are doing great. Is that a nice way of saying we went on too long? Absolutely not. No, you guys really are, no. are doing fantastic. I, I think that you know the so we we mostly talked about clinical trials and and looking at a clinical trial and uh for like a randomized clinical trial was the was the example i gave it might be helpful to just say if if our if our listeners are reading an observational study or a meta analysis um kind of where you put those on the hierarchy and are there any quick points so dr lane for observational studies how do you differ when you look at them I think, you know, it's similar to the way, you know, you should approach a trial. I think the appraisal of observational studies, like cohort studies and case control studies, should still begin by asking yourself whether the question is clearly stated and something that you care to know the answer to. And then I think you have to think about the study design used to answer the question 
and ask whether it's the best available that's out there. So if you're looking at a case control study, but that that's trying to answer a question where we have clinical trial data, you probably, I would have more confidence in the clinical trial data. Of course, maybe if that clinical trial was done in a population that was not like the patients I care for, I may find some useful information in the, an observational study that's enrolling a population that's like my patients. But you have to, um, you know, I think a lot of the, the, the potential for, for biases is much greater and more difficult to detect in, in observational studies. And then I think once you're convinced that, you know, this study design, you know, may not be a trial, but it really is the best that there is at this time to answer the question I want the answer to, I think you have to ask some of the same questions. Are the study patients similar to my patients? Are the in interventions reported in enough detail that I could replicate them? Are the outcomes measured carefully and consistently because you don't have the benefit of, of randomization to balance all the differences between the groups, whether the researchers thought about and attempted to account for some important um, confounding factors. What we find in animals is our appraisal of studies, it, it's much more straightforward for clinical trials than for um, some of the you know, more complicated observational study designs. So I did want to ask about uh, meta-analyses because I tend to get excited about them just because I feel like well, now I'm reading something that uses all the articles, so it has to be good. I just wonder when you're <laughs> when you're when you're when you're approaching those, is there are there any um, potential hiccups or anything that you should be any caveats that you should be thinking about or any potential uh, points of weakness that you should be looking for when when going through meta-analyses? Before you get to meta-analysis, you have to perform a systematic review. And so we, we have to be sure we start out there. We need to understand, and Christine mentioned this earlier, it's, it's, worth, it's worth emphasizing, the difference between a systematic review and a narrative review is exactly how you just introduced the question. I want to know everything that's out there. So a narrative review, you have no idea what studies the author chose to put into this paper you're reading and which she chose not to include. A systematic review is a very developed, rigorous stance where you're going to look at the world's literature to try to find out what, the, what we know about the answer to a specific question. So eventually we'll get to meta-analysis, but we have to start with, systematic, with the systematic review. So with the review, you want to look at, what, are they asking a focused question? How are they searching the world's literature um, to find all the relevant studies. So do they have a good search, search strategy that will reliably identify every, all of the thousands of papers that need to be looked at? Um, then you look at, well, what did they find? And are the authors using some reliable way of assessing the quality of the studies that they've chosen to include in this systematic review? And then finally, okay, what did those studies show? And when you've done all that, you get to the question of, is, is it appropriate to perform a meta-analysis? That's a key question that people often miss. So you have to look at the details, the studies, 
let's say you're asking for what have randomized trials shown about the effect of A on B, and you find out that of the 50 trials they identified and are including in this systematic review and now meta-analysis, the studies differ drastically. They have markedly different participants enrolled in the studies. They've got markedly different primary endpoints. Um, they've got markedly different durations of therapy. It may be completely inappropriate to put all those numbers together to try to give you some single estimate of effect. So it may be that a meta-analysis is completely inappropriate or was inappropriate, even though the study is reporting it. So you need to look carefully at that. Is that when they the last report... That I, the, oh, I was going to say, is that when they report the heterogeneity of the studies included? Yes. Yep. yes. You're, you're looking at... So just because you see meta-analysis doesn't mean that it was the right thing to do. You can do it. Mathematically, you can plug the numbers in and spit something out, but it may very well turn out to be garbage in, garbage out. Um, so you need, you need to look carefully. The last point that I would make, the beauty of a systematic review is actually telling us that the state of the literature today is simply not good enough to answer this question. That seems disappointing, and it, and it is disappointing, but that can be a very important conclusion from a well-done systematic, systematic review that identified the relevant literature, did a, did a good, rigorous assessment of the quality of the individual studies they've included, and decided, as an example, that we should not be performing meta-analysis here because there's too much heterogeneity or, the, the, or for other reasons it's not appropriate to try to, to try to draw firm conclusions. That can be very helpful. Yeah, I would, I would think that it's almost as often as a systematic review tells us what we know, it tells us in pretty, you know, stark terms what, what we don't know and what, and what the gaps in the evidence are. Um, and until you comprehensively look at the literature and, um, and see what those gaps are, it can be hard to, to recognize that they're, that they're there. And I think this is a good point. So we've kind of gone through uh, how to how to edit or how to edit, yeah, how to edit a journal. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. That would take a lot of shows, I imagine. Um, I wanted to ask. I, I wanted to ask you each for take home points because I think at this point we've we've kind of gone through things. It's a good broad overview, I think, for the audience, uh, especially uh, especially for people who are new to trying to interpret the medical literature. And uh, I'll ask you each, Dr. Lane, first, can you give us one or two take-home points? And then, Dr. Tashman, you can, you can give yours as well. So, so I think, you know, unless the journal is Annals of Internal Medicine, um, just because something <laughs> is published in a good journal doesn't mean that, that something is valid or useful. And, you, you know, unfortunately, I wish there were easier hints that we could give the listeners but you really need to be a critical reader to responsibly incorporate uh, new evidence into your practice. And, you know, I think that you were all really helpful in outlining just a couple of key things that you can look at, because I, I know when I teach critical appraisal to, to students and residents, people get 
really nervous because they because statistics makes them nervous, but so much of critical appraisal comes before you even get to the statistics. And it really has to do with things that are, you know, what's the question? Who are the patients? Are these outcomes that I care about? And those things really have nothing, nothing to do with statistics or, you know, fancy, fancy methodology. It, it really, a lot of those things are clinical judgment. I, I love that point, mostly because it's uh, self-serving, because uh, I, I would make that kind of thing, I would say that sort of thing to the residents often, that statistics are definitely something that I was intimidated by, and that's and, and the, appraising the, the literature was something that I've been intimidated by and have, in the past several years, gotten more more comfortable with, and that's mostly without improving my knowledge of statistics. It's just sort of <laughs> trying to trying to learn uh, critical appraisal, and 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 the biggest parts of it. I mean, at least the foundations are. You don't need much statistics to do it. So, right, great, right. great point. <laughs> and, and I do love the emphasis on relevance too. Like it took me a while to get over the guilt of not reading about that study with the monoclonal antibody that's very specific to one tiny disease state that I've never seen and actually <laughs> yeah. trying to search are actually relevant if, to me. If you're not going to be able to use the information in the near future, at least for me, I'm going to forget it. And when I do need it, I'm going to have to read it again anyway. And your time is going to be, you know, much better spent, um, you know, reading a novel or going for a run or something. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Great. Novels. Dr. Tashman, any any uh, take-home points to add? So the only thing new that I would add is that you're not alone here. You're never going to catch up. We've already said that. But you don't need to do this on your own. Most institutions have terrific journal clubs. Take the time to go and participate in the journal club that is going on at your institution. Read the article ahead of time. And you'll learn a tremendous amount by thinking carefully and then listening to others because you'll dive into the method. The conversation will usually be about a study that hopefully the group finds interesting and you won't be doing it by yourself. And, I, and I, it'll help you having gone through a series of articles in a journal club format, then help you to recognize the strengths and weaknesses of studies when you're, when you're looking at them by yourself. Awesome. I, I think this is a, a great place to end. I want to thank you both for all your time tonight. We've gone mm-hmm. a few minutes over, and I, I know it's late uh, on the East Coast. So so thanks so much for taking the time, and, and we'll let you know. This will come out two or three weeks' time. I can, I, I'll let you know by email, though. Okay. Thank, thanks so much Terrific. for having us. It was fun. Yes. Yep. Thank it's you. It was a thank lot you. of fun. Great to talk to you. It thank sure you. was. Thank you. Have a, have a nice night. You all too. Right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. You know, I, I wanted to do a quick recap here. We just, uh, the take-home points, I, I thought the take-home points were really great by Dr. Lane and Dr. Tashman. And Stuart and I, uh, were when, when we were working together at Cashlack, we're running a morning report where the residents would do these PICO presentations, and that's part of why I asked about it. And right. I actually, I, I hated PICO, full disclosure, as a resident <laughs> and a medical student because it's it's extra work. You're already busy and, and you're not sleeping much. But I, I really think that after going through so many of these, you know, it is really this practice thing where the more articles you read and, and critically appraise, the easier it becomes. And you start to see these patterns. Like mm-hmm. you can see uh, right away, like they're they weren't asking a good question. Right. 
there's obvious sources of bias and and I, I yeah. so I would encourage people to try to it try to participate like Dr. Tashman was saying in I, your in your journal clubs. Yeah, I, I, it's it's unfortunately a little bit self-aggrandizing because I I think that I've obtained more uh knowledge and wisdom just by uh running those pico presentations than the residents. So and just by seeing them over and over and over again, I've gotten to a point where I think it's easier for me to uh, briefly critically appraise maybe not the the article, but at least the presentation that's on the article to help me to realize what what's a good question, a good clinical question, and, and what's not. And unfortunately, I think it, it just takes practice, and it takes a lot of uh, just trial and error to get to a point where you're able to do it quickly and efficiently. I don't know. I'm, I think I was the opposite of Matt. Like, I really loved doing PICOs, um, in part because I love sort of chasing down citations down the rabbit hole. But it's, I, I think... I wasn't very savvy, so I'd end up in like journals like the Eastern Yugoslavian <laughs> Journal of Applied Basket Weaving and Peripheral Neuropathy to answer my question just because it was so specific, and I don't think I actually appreciated the quality of the study. So I think it's, it takes it's, – it's great to be able to find sources, but to actually be able to look at them critically, I, I think, like we talked about tonight, is extraordinarily helpful. What, what was the name of that, of that journal again? Uh, Eastern Yugoslavian Journal of Applied Basket Weaving and okay. Peripheral Neuropathy. Eastern so. Yugoslavian Journal of Applied Basket Weaving. <laughs> Are we going back to the loud typing bit, Stuart? I like it. <laughs> That's fantastic. It's a classic. <laughs> oh, okay. Little curbsider street for the old. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, mm-hmm. bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You can also sign up to receive our monthly video newsletter summarizing the key tools, tips, and tricks for your practice at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. So please send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com where you can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And maybe we'll even read your email on a future show. Have you ever read hate mail? We... We haven't gotten any hate mail. One guy said he didn't appreciate our sophomoric banter, and that was a direct quote. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've talked to my mom about that. We should make that like our motto. (laughs) The home of sophomoric medical banter. (laughs) Yeah, clearly we didn't listen to that feedback because the rest of it has been a little bit more positive on on that note. But uh, some some people have asked how, how they can help the show. Actually, it helps us if you subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. This will help us get guests and be motivated to keep doing the show. And uh, it's, yes, we, we appreciate those of you who have left us a review. Finally, you can follow us on our pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. Buenos noches. I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. Good night. And I remain Paul Nelson Williams. Good night. Good night, Paul. And your two cats. Good night. Good night. Three, did something happen? (laughs) 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 I have to go. I have to check on something, guys. (laughs) Sorry. Three cats. I meant it was two sons is what it was. (laughs) That's right. My two mediocre sons. (laughs) 